I explained this morning that the Buddha's teaching is divided into three parts, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And the one part I have not yet spoken about is the part, the first one, moral conduct. Moral conduct is expressed in what is called the precepts. And they're not all that different from the Ten Commandments. But there's one very distinctive difference. They're not expressed as a commandment, as thou shalt not or you must not, or that any breaking of it is considered to be a sin. The word sin does not exist in Pali. They are expressed as, I undertake the training to refrain from. So as the absolute realist that the Buddha was, he knew that we needed training to refrain from certain things. And when we make the mistake, of not refraining from it, it's not considered to be a sin, it's considered to be human weakness, and all we need to do is take the precept again. In other words, every time we come aware of the fact that we have not refrained from certain unwholesome actions, then we have to make a new resolution. These five precepts, the first five, are the standard training for any ordinary person. Then there are more that are the training for special occasions, then there are more that are training for novices, and then there are more that are training for monks and nuns. They become more and more detailed and more and more in small and analytical aspects. The main training is contained in the first five. And while we look at them as something to avoid and overcome, we also look at the opposite to develop and maintain. So these four words which I have mentioned quite a number of times already are pertinent to the whole of the training. The avoiding and overcoming means to refrain from and the over the, the avoiding and the overcoming is 
the inclination towards it. The first one of the precepts is to undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Now that does not just mean people, although it would be really of great advantage if that precept were kept where it con concerns people, but it goes further than that. It concerns all living beings, which means anything as small or as large as we can find. This does not have in mind that certain living beings which are a nuisance to us should be cultivated. But what it has in mind is that we refrain from the killing aspect because that's concerned with hate. We don't kill what we love, we kill what we hate. So it is trying to teach us to abstain from hating. Now, obviously, in the last analysis, we can avoid that completely. But in the first instance, when we are training ourselves, we have to try and overcome it. So the natural inclination to kill maybe mice or mosquitoes or flies needs to be overcome with the understanding that it is necessary to do that in order to overcome our hate towards other creatures who also value their own lives that these other creatures are trying to join our living space is the reason why we don't want them. But it's not considered to be enough reason to kill them. Every person, every single person has to come to terms with that him or herself. The first precept is not to kill living beings, to undertake the training to refrain from. Which living beings one picks out of that particular precept, everybody has to figure out for themselves. Whether it's all or some or little ones or medium-sized ones, everybody's got to come to terms with that themselves. Everybody carries their own conscience and their own karma. However, it goes further than just to avoid and overcome. There is something to develop and maintain, and that is, of course, the opposite of hate, which is love and compassion. So it asks us and really shows us that in order to have this precept as a real training rule, we need to also learn to love that which we consider not lovable.
Now, to love something that we consider lovable is a cinch. Anybody can do it. That's not a spiritual training. A spiritual training is to love that which we consider not lovable. And since that is only a personal opinion, what we consider lovable and not lovable, we might as well refrain from that personal opinion and take the whole thing, all that is alive and all that exists. Since that is a tall order, you can see that following such a precept is not just lip service. It is a commitment. It is a commitment to a spiritual life. It's a commitment to purification. It's a commitment to change, to inner change. That it will not always work is, of course, a matter of course. That we will always make mistakes is also a matter of course. There's nothing wrong with that. Mistakes are there to be made. But we need to recognize the fact when we have made a mistake because only then can we rectify it. When we think our mistakes are justified, which means they are not mistakes, then we won't rectify them. So if we take this first precept, not to kill living beings, to mean all, and then take it to mean that we need to practice and develop and maintain love and compassion for all, then we have an enormously large training ground. And we will be able to train ourselves little by little, step after step. Nobody can do it all at once. Most people don't even try. Trying is the spiritual path. That what we consider to be unlovely, lacking in attraction, which we consider even disturbing, to learn to love that is the biggest challenge. If we use that as our challenge, We've got our work cut out for ourselves. But every time we succeed, we feel a great deal of self-confidence and a great deal of security within. Every time we don't succeed, there's no need for blame. There is the acceptance of the fact that this is difficult that our views and opinions are always in the way. It's very difficult for human beings, unbelievably difficult, to think straight. Most people go around in circles. And those circles are our views and opinions. The difficulty 
needs to be accepted, seen and accepted, and then we can do something about it. So even with this very first precept, we have an enormous challenge. Because the world is full of creatures. There are five billion people on this planet, but there are far more other creatures also. There's no way to count them. And even five billion is probably just a guess and probably already wrong, was probably right last year, is wrong this year. But other creatures, there's no way to count. And to extend one's true and self-love towards all that are creatures is a difficult undertaking, but the one which is most worthwhile. We spend our days doing things, naturally, and we should. But that one is one which is worth including. It isn't time-consuming, there's no excuse, I haven't got time for that. It isn't a thing that needs to be done in a certain setting or at a certain time of the day or with certain other people. It's just a matter of remembering and becoming aware, recognizing, going on in the heart, not blaming, but changing. All of these practices, every single one of them, has one single direction, no matter which practice it is. And if that direction is not seen, recognized, and used, the practice is useless. The practice is to reduce our egocentricity. That's all that what we're practicing for. Whether we're watching the breath or doing the sweeping or trying to love or doing walking meditation, anything we do if it doesn't reduce egocentricity, we might as well forget about it. And it often does not reduce it. On the contrary, it reinforces it. Look at me, what a wonderful meditator I am. That's not where it's at. Or look at me, I can sit still for two hours. That's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do. That reinforces the me. So loving others, obviously, is letting go of being only concerned with self and giving giving love to others. That giving 
is a reducing of egocentricity. The second one of the precepts is worded, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Now, that means, of course, in the first instance, not stealing. But it goes much further than not becoming a bank robber. This is far too isolated an occurrence. Most people do not break into houses and steal things. But it means to be as careful with other people's belongings as one would be with one's own because there's no difference between that which belongs to somebody else and that which belongs to, apparently, to me. It means that we would never even think of taking something which has not been expressly handed to us or given to us as a gift which should include the smallest item. Whatever we think is the smallest item that is connected to this precept. Everybody has to figure that one out themselves. But it also, of course, besides avoiding and overcoming our natural desire for greed, it also means developing and maintaining the opposite. Now, obviously, it works against greed, not taking. But the opposite is generosity, giving. Now, generosity is, in Pali, dana, D-A-N-A, is the first of ten virtues which need to be developed on the spiritual path. The developing of these virtues is considered to be the essential aspect of a spiritual life. If you come back next year, I'll tell you the other nine. <laughs> and if I come back next year... But generosity, being the first one, is the one that opens the door. It doesn't mean that the other nine are not equally important, but something has to happen that we've got an opening of the door. Most people are sort of spun into their own lies, ideas, views, hopes, plans, and the rest of the world is only interesting when it can give them something. Information, or love, or appreciation, or um, um, material benefit, then the rest of the world becomes interesting to that extent. But other than that, the whole thing just goes by as if it were in a fog. So generosity opens the door. The, the door to 
first of all, consideration of others, their wishes, their equal importance ourselves, consideration of their space that they're occupying. Most people are aware of the space they're themselves occupying, but they take very little notice of the space that somebody else is occupying. So that's the first thing that happens. We become aware. After that, generosity is the one most important factor in reducing this constant ego concern, self-concern, I want and I want to keep, and I want to get and I want to have. Somebody's going to give me. Like the world owes me a living, which is, of course, exaggerated. Nobody really believes it. Most people act as if it were true. Generosity is not wanting to get, but wanting to give. And the more we give, the more we've got. The more we give of ourselves, the more there has to be of ourselves. Otherwise, we can't give it. The less we give of ourselves, the less there is. It's only logical, it's a law of nature. Generosity concerns not only material things, but this is always a very good starting point. Giving, not everybody has money to give, giving things, giving, sharing skills, giving one's time. giving one's ear, listening. Most people don't know how to listen. Because it's again, what do we want to know about somebody else? We mostly want to know about ourselves, so why should we listen? We listen very often with half an ear. It's uh, so common that we don't even know we're doing it. And sometimes afterwards we're surprised that we didn't even know Giving oneself in all aspects enriches oneself. The enrichment comes from the fact that the person that gives him or herself has to become much more of a person. The more people we can give something to of ourselves, the more there has to be. The benefit that the person who does it gets from it is immediate if we're not looking for gratitude. If we're looking for gratitude, we're going to guarantee it's going to be disappointed. But if we're not looking for gratitude, we have immediate benefit, namely the wonderful feeling of having given all that we've got. Having totally embraced 
those who wanted to get something and having been able to supply that. The Buddha said there are three rarities in the world. The arising of a Buddha, a person who will do a kindness, and a person who will be grateful for that. So if that is as rare as the rising of a Buddha, it hardly ever happens, which one would assume is a bit of an exaggeration. But we can see that looking for gratitude when we are generous is the wrong way of acting because if we give something, apparently we want something in return, even if it's only gratitude. So our giving is still the ordinary marketplace kind of giving, the exchange, the barter. I'll give you that many dollars and you have to give me that much for those dollars. I'll give you that much, I'm giving you that much as a gift, so I must get that much gratitude back. That's asking for results. And that is not the kind of generosity which brings that feeling of embracing others. It does not bring the kind of happiness that generosity can bring because it is looking for something in return and is therefore not at ease. Am I going to get it or am I not? And if that uneasiness is included in generosity, then it is impure. The only pure generosity is giving for giving's sake. And the interesting part of it, and I've mentioned it already when I was talking about love, that the more love one gives, the more one's got, of course. It's a law of nature with everything. The more one gives away, the more one has. Most people don't believe it. And even if they believe it because it sounds nice, they're afraid to try it because they don't really believe it. They're afraid they're going to lose something. The more we give ourselves away, the better we can meditate. When we give ourselves away completely, then in meditation we really have a result. We get the best there is. And if we actually come to the point where we're willing to give ourselves away totally, the result is even more remarkable. Only those people who've tried it and done it will believe it. The rest of the world says, well, it sounds good, but um, I don't know about that. I think I better keep what I've got. What's that? A bird in the hand's better than two in the bush or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> Generosity is uh, also a, a state of mind. It's not just giving away things. Naturally, giving away things or money or skills or time are all results from that state of mind. 
That state of mind is one which feels connected. A state of mind which feels part of the whole, which is willing to share, which is willing to be included in the whole, rather than separate. Our constant separation from each other breeds nothing but problems and disease, unease, anxiety, and difficulties. The difficulties that we experience with other people is that separation from other people. So generosity opens the door to recognizing that there really isn't just this one person to be looked after. The Buddha talked about generosity in this way. He said there are three kinds. The first kind is the generosity of a beggar. That is when we give away our old sweaters to the Salvation Army, but we don't need anyway. We want to get rid of it. Then there is the generosity of a friend. That is when we share equally with each other. And then there's the generosity of a king. That's when we give away more than we keep. Now that's very rare. And such people become usually fairly famous because it is so rare. Now it doesn't have to be money necessarily that they give away. A person whom we might use as an example there is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She gives herself and her time and her whole life away to others. Certainly not giving things but herself. So the generosity as a state of mind where we have recognized that trying to get something and even if it's just trying to get concentration doesn't work. But trying to let go and give away that what we're carrying around as a burden and flow freely freely and give as much as we can away that does work. So it works in all aspects of life, not just in everyday um, personal contacts, but it also works in the meditation. And it is probably most have noticed that already. Wanting a result in meditation is counterproductive. Meditation is no different from anything else. Wanting to get something is counterproductive, particularly to happiness. The third precept is to undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, obviously that means not to hurt another person physically or emotionally, but it also includes the opposite, which means being reliable, faithful, responsible, and that not only includes our sexual relationships, where this is of course particularly important because it creates havoc if it isn't done, but also our friendships and our other human connections. Not to hurt anyone emotionally or physically, but 
intentionally that to be faithful, responsible, and reliable, and steadfast with friendships just as much as with all other connections. If we have that ability, then we know we can rely upon ourselves. We're not going to change like leaves in the wind from one person to another, whether in relationship or in friendship. We are there and available and our friendship does not waver. Friendship is a very important aspect in the Buddhist teaching. I have already mentioned it. I'll mention it again. I said that the common antidote for all our five hindrances, while they all have separate antidotes, they have one in common, which is noble friends and noble conversations. Now, noble friends are a very important part of everyone's life. Because these are the people that we're often very much influenced by. And if these people that we have as friends or relationships or as companions in any way are people who are noble, that means they have a spiritual uh, pathway, then we are influenced by that. They need to be people that we can be honest to. If we can't be honest to a good friend, then we feel very lonely. And while a fully enlightened person will never feel lonely, let's face it, maybe we are not quite enlightened yet, and loneliness is part of the way of life where we cannot be completely open to another person. But we can only do that if we have already learned to be completely honest to ourselves about ourselves. As long as we still have fanciful ideas about ourselves, either negatively or positively, I'm worse than you or better than you, whichever it is, or I can do or I can't do. As long as we have these fanciful ideas about ourselves, there's no honesty, and we won't be able to have the kind of friendship which is extremely fulfilling. When we start being really honest to ourselves about ourselves, seeing ourselves clearly, not blaming and not being overly enthusiastic, but just being ourselves, the way we are, accepting it and loving it, then we can have these relationships with other people on a friendship basis, which is extremely helpful on the spiritual path because it helps us to clear out many of the doubts and difficulties. When we have someone who is also practicing and we can hear in, from that other person that they may have the same difficulties 
and even may be able to tell us how they have overcome them, then we have already jumped another hurdle. So a reliable, to be a reliable friend is the only way to have a reliable friend. If we are not able to be a noble friend, we won't get any. So it is up to each one of us to see how much of that we can actualize in ourselves. Friendship is the most valuable aspect of human relationships. There's nothing more valuable. Sometimes people who are in a relationship can also be friends. And that's possible, and it's not very common. That's a wonderful situation. But to be a friend makes it possible to have friends. And when we have them, not on a superficial basis, where we go out and have a cup of coffee together or talk to each other about the weather or the football game or whatever it may be, but on a basis where we talk about our most inmost emotions, our inmost difficulties, not on a basis that we can do it better or worse than someone else. That kind of friendship is of the, one of the great benefits of spiritual life. In fact, the Buddha said, to have such a friend is the whole of the spiritual life. Without such a friend, spiritual life is really difficult. Very often, the meditation teacher is supposed to be such a friend. But since we don't have the opportunity to be with a meditation teacher all the time, unless we live in the center with him, her, him, her, then we need to find other friends. And it is not just a matter of those who cross their legs and sit on a pillow. Sometimes we can find friends amongst people who never even heard the word meditation, who are wise and accomplished in the ways of human beings. The most necessary quality for this is utter honesty. And utter honesty means that we're not afraid to show our deficiencies. We don't have to have any makeup on, on our inner being. We are able to show ourselves the way we really are. The force of the precept is to undertake the training to refrain from false speech. False speech means in the first instance, lying, which is obvious. It includes gossiping, it includes backbiting, it includes idle chatter, harsh words and idle chatter. Lying, backbiting, gossiping and idle chatter. Of all the five precepts, this one is the one that's broken most. 
Idle chatter is the one where most people fall down upon. And not just in ordinary everyday life, but it is well known that this is a precept hardest to keep in all monasteries and nunneries. Because idle chatter seems to be the easiest and cheapest entertainment there is. And while outside entertainment is, of course, shunned in monasteries and nunneries, only in those places where there is complete silence during the whole day is idle chatter never happening. Otherwise, it happens all the time. What is idle chatter? It means talking about nothing. It means talking for talking's sake. It's uh, the most popular entertainment that there is. It's uh, something that we use in order to escape from our own dukkha. It's something that we use to kill time. It's a lovely sentence, actually, lovely word, uh, idiomatic expression, to kill time. It's strictly done in the English language. There's no such thing in, in the other languages to kill time. Imagine what we're doing. We're killing time. We're not supposed to kill. So, this is something which can only be changed or even approached if we watch ourselves very carefully. And watching ourselves very carefully in the beginning seems to be a chore. Mindfulness huh? seems to be a, a chore, a difficulty. One does it during a meditation retreat, somehow or other. But then one gets home, one finally can relax and do whatever it is what one wants to do. But if one really practices meditation, and I mean really. And if one really wants to grow on the spiritual path, eventually mindfulness becomes a habit. You can't do anything else anymore. Mindfulness is a mental habit. Just like idle chatter has always been a habit. Mindfulness becomes a habit. And when it has become a habit, and it seems to be necessary for it to have become a habit, until one notices, even notices, the idle chatter. And then, of course, one has a choice. Now, asking somebody how they feel is not idle chatter. If the intention behind it is to show the other person that one cares about their well-being. But if one just says, how are you? And the other person says, great, how are you? <laughs> obviously neither one of them want to know so it depends what the intention behind it is now if one wants to show another person that one is concerned with them and about about their situation 
but knows very well that they don't have any interest in meditation or the Dhamma or anything like that, naturally one will talk about something that may interest them. And it may not be of a very uh, philosophical or psychological content, but it's still the intention behind it is fine. So we have to watch our intention. What is it? Do I want to kill time? Do I want to escape from my own dukkha? Do I just want to present myself by telling whatever it is? Or am I interesting, interested in showing the other person care and concern? Gossip is considered that which is untrue. Gossip is untrue. And backbiting, of course, is trying to set people against each other. All of that is usually connected with untruth. Right speech is naturally the opposite of the wrong speech. So we need to be concerned with right thinking first, and then right speaking as a result of that. Often people who know these precepts can't figure out what's right speech and what is not. I've heard that many a time. Some of them think that you have to be totally agreeable to everything. Only that can be right. Well, it's absurd, isn't it? Some think that you can't say anything may seem to sound like a criticism. The Buddha himself criticized the wrong teachers the, the teachers who were teaching the wrong doctrine quite freely. There was no hate in that. But what he was doing was he was trying to protect others from listening to wrong teaching. So it's the intention behind it which counts. If we know our own intention, we will only know our own intention when we get in touch with our own inner being. The more we are in touch, the more we will know. A very famous discourse which we will discuss in the next uh, four weeks is a discourse it's called the Samanapala Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about six other teachers, all of them teaching the wrong doctrine. In no way would an enlightened one have had any hate in him, nor would he have had any desire to hurt, but he had the wish to protect. So the only way we'll ever know 
whether we're using right speech or not, is by knowing our own intention. Obviously, harsh words are not useful. That is a matter of course. And right speech is again, of course, connected to the noble conversation. When we are able to have conversations which ennoble us, which are elevating. Now this is another feature which is mentioned as a quality of a noble friend or a good friend, is that we will talk about such matters which we may not have heard before, that such a person would be well able to explain such matters, in other words, have the ability of speech, and such talk would be elevating to the mind the mind would feel happy about it. That's also part of being a noble friend and goes into the right speech aspect. And I've already once given the formula for right speech, but I will repeat it right now because it fits in here better than before. The Buddha said, if we know anything that can be hurtful and is untrue not to say it. If we know anything that can be helpful and is untrue not to say it. If we know anything that can be hurtful and is true not to say it. If we know anything that can be helpful and is true to find the right time. It means that we have to be very adept at knowing what's helpful. We have to be very adept at knowing when it's the right time. Naturally, there will be mistakes made. But if we keep that formula in mind, at least we have a guideline. We don't just talk. We have a guideline how to use our speech. It doesn't mean to become an orator. By no means. It means our daily connections when we talk to each other. It's a very important part. We would have talked about it often because we do a lot of talking, usually. The last one is to refrain, to undertake the training, to refrain from drugs and alcohol. How much is refraining from drugs and alcohol is everybody's own responsibility, whether a little or a little more or not at all. Everybody's got to figure that out for themselves. The Buddha's guidelines are to refrain from. The opposite of that is mindfulness. Because the Buddha said drugs and alcohol 
confuse the mind even more than it is already confused. <laughs> so the opposite is mindfulness. Mindfulness is bare attention, being right here now. No opinion, no viewpoint, not even any kind of reaction. Mindfulness reaction is clear comprehension. I'll explain that tomorrow. But mindfulness as such is just knowing only. That's all. Being right there now. Obviously we learn that in meditation, but we have to continue that in daily life. Every time we have an opinion, we're no longer mindful until we become aware of the fact that we have an opinion. Then we have regained our mindfulness. And then the opinion, of course, dissolves because the observer is no longer opinionated. It's only observing. There's a very fine difference between all that. One's got to get to know oneself. These are the five precepts and their opposite. And if we remember those and the four words of avoiding overcoming, developing and maintaining, we have a good handle on using spiritual practice in everyday life. It's at least a good beginning. Tomorrow, those of you who would like to do that can take refuge in precept, and I will explain that tomorrow morning, what that means and how it can be helpful in daily life. And I'll explain the refuge tomorrow. Now, if there's any questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. Well, let's put it this way. When the Buddha did it, he didn't have any viewpoint of op and opinions. He just had wisdom. And so we, of course, need to be careful because we may not have wisdom. But if it is quite clear to us that there's something that is not good and this our intention that this what is not good should not reach out further, then our good intention protects us. So even if we were making a mistake, the good intention is the protection from that. Actually, we have to be careful because our wisdom may not be so developed yet. But I mentioned that because it is sometimes thought that the Buddha never criticized anything or anyone. 
Well, he certainly did. And he called his monks and nuns fools quite often. <laughs> when they misbehaved. Why they're saying that? Hmm. Mm. Yes. Well, they they criticizing that we could do to another person would fall under the category. If you know something that can be helpful and is true, find the right time. And the right time is when we have only. Uh, love and compassion or let's say compassion for the person that we want to talk to so that those two would have to be co-joined then and the person who is told that they are very critical is very often a person who has perfectionism in their mind and want themselves to be perfect and are not contented with that they're imperfect and so not contented that others are imperfect so that also needs to be considered. But if we can co-join the criticizing with that other um, formula, it will probably work quite well. Anything else? Yes. Well, we usually think that children from seven years on upward are quite capable of meditating for a short period of time but it also appears that nowadays there are much younger children who do it quite naturally um, without being told even. I've seen a three-year-old sit down with legs crossed on the floor closing her eyes and sitting like that until the mother came along and said what are you doing? And she looked up and she said, meditating. I mean, she was three years old and she had never had any instructions. But that was only a very isolated instance. But children from seven years on un upward would, should certainly be able to do it. But the best way to teach them is through example. If oneself has children at home and one sits down in the morning and the children might be curious and ask, what are you doing? And you could say, well, you're allowed to join me for a little while. The old Tom Sawyer technique, you're allowed to paint my tent. And uh, then allowing them to, be, to get up when they want to, not to force them to sit a certain length of time, to get up, you know, quietly so they don't disturb the, the parents. And one of the things that the children like to do is loving-kindness meditation. And one of the things they like doing is breathing in love and breathing out peace. They, they like that very much. And then thinking of a certain person that they want to, or breathing in peace and breathing out love, and they want a certain person that they want to breathe it out to. They like that a lot. So that's, and there is a book on children's meditation. I've forgotten its name. But uh, under seven, it's uh, rare. But up from seven on, it's all right. Nothing else. Yes. 
Yes, I will tomorrow. Yes. I've already promised. <laughs> yes, I certainly will tomorrow. Yes. It's really sure. Yeah. Well, one way is to try and change the topic to something which is a little more profound, something which is a little more meaningful. It doesn't have to be the, the most philosophical conversation, but something which is a little meaningful, which has something to do with how one feels and how the other person feels. And that is one way. And uh, it usually finds uh, a willing ear because most people are interested in talking about things which are really meaningful to them. The other way, of course, is that to excuse oneself and say that one has to go or leave. It's very, very tiring and energy-consuming. Out of chatter, this social kind of talk, extremely energy-consuming. And... Uh, um, totally non-productive. So if one has a, a way of excusing oneself in some manner or form, one, one can do that. But first to change the topic, if one can. And if there's a bigger crowd that are all talking together, then of course one can just vanish because they don't, <laughs> <laughs> they don't notice it. They're busy talking. It's uh, very often um, a problem when peop where people work at work in lunch hours and things like that, or even during the work time. And um, yes, one can try to be the noble friend with noble conversations, but not everybody wants to hear that. Mm -hmm. So one can also get a reputation to be. Um, very uninteresting or somebody you can't really talk to. It is important also to have the courage of one's own conviction. It's very important not to dissipate one's mental energy. The dissipation of one's mental energy doesn't do anybody any good, oneself and not other people. And the more there is idle chatter and the more there is negativity, the more the energy is being dissipated. The more there is positivity, the more uplift there is. So, it's a sort of a path which one has to find oneself, the middle path, the middle way, where one has to see that no extremes on either way. Sometimes one has to trial and error.
If you are a habitual liar, <laughs> if you break all of them, <laughs> well, the first one, the first one has enormous consequences on ill will. Your ill will becomes stronger and stronger, and the second one has enormous consequences on your desire for sensual gratification because it's greed, right? So, and the third one has consequences on your restlessness and worry. And the, the lying, well, that includes all of them, I would say. You'd be in trouble with all of them, with all of the hindrances, you know. So, um, one expects a meditator to not be habitually bothered with the five of them because other people who are habitually bothered with them usually don't come for meditation but that of course that there are occasional mishaps so to say a stream enterer is supposed to never break one of the five any of the five precepts and uh, so that's the first instance when the five precepts are safe after stream entry. Because the stream entry has seen the, for at least for a moment, that there isn't really anybody there, so there's no real desire anymore to do any of those five things. Because a person that is no longer so imbued with that self-view has much easier not to break the precepts. If one is habitually breaking precepts, it would be highly unlikely that one would come from to meditation. I don't think that that happens. And if it does, those people usually go home after the first day. It, it just isn't possible. Because this is a... Sitting down to meditate is an immediate purification system. And if that is too strong, one can't handle that. So, and also it is said that uh, breaking a precept here and there is not going to um, have such enormous consequences. It's a habitual breaking which has the consequences. That's the, that has real, really consequences. That's what is said about it. And if one has taken the precept and has then, after having taken them, broken one, one just takes it again, to oneself, by oneself. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
bring up forgiveness for yourself for anything that you think you may have done wrong in the past in the far past or near past forgive yourself completely considering it and the state which happens out of lack of wisdom and is totally forgivable and feel contentment seeping in to your heart when you have forgiven yourself and then think of the many things that you have to be grateful for enumerate them in your mind and let gratitude arise for each gift that is yours people situation, dhamma, practice, material well-being, nature, anything you can think of that is good, let gratitude arise in you for that. and feel the joy that comes from gratitude Now think of your parents and forgive them for anything you think they've done wrong all mistakes or lack of wisdom 
forgive them completely. And feel the contentment seeping in. And then think of the many things that you can be grateful for to them. All the help they gave when we were too small to do anything. We owe them life. Gratitude arise in you for all the good things that you received and feel the joy of that gratitude. Now think of those people who are close to you. Maybe sharing your life with you in the same house. Forgive them for anything that you think they have done wrong or are doing wrong. Total forgiveness. Watch the contentment arise that comes from forgiveness. And then fill them with your gratitude for all the good things they have done. Gratitude that they are part of your life. of anyone with whom you may have difficulty and forgive that person completely for anything you think they've done wrong. 
just mistake. That's all. Often viewpoint. Fill that person with your forgiveness. and feel the ease and contentment arise within you. And then fill that person with your gratitude Gratitude for the learning experience they have made possible for you. Be grateful for that and fill him or her with gratitude and feel the joy that comes from that. Now look around in your mind for all those people about whom you may have thought negative thoughts, whom you may have blamed for something, whether you know them well or not, and forgive them for everything that you think they've done wrong. Just mistakes. That's all. Let this forgiveness from your heart reach out to anyone you can think of where you have had dislike or blame. And then be grateful for, to all these people also for showing you the way how to overcome. And now think of all the people 
who make up your daily life, anyone you have anything to do with. And think of something that you can be grateful for to each person and fill each one with your gratitude. And now fill everyone who is present here with your gratitude for being a support for your own practice. For having the same kind of effort for being a companion on the path. Fill every single person here with your gratitude for that. Put your attention back on yourself. Forgive yourself once more for any and all mistakes you've ever made. They're all in the past. Now is the present. Fill yourself with forgiveness. Feel the ease and contentment that comes from that. Feel yourself with gratitude for all the good things in your life. Starting with the breath, 
that means love. Don't take anything for granted. Look at the many things you can be grateful for. Feel the joy that comes from that. Let the contentment fill you from head to toe and the joy surround you. So that you can sit in it, totally protected. May beings everywhere experience joy and contentment. 